0: Romans chapter 5. He's actually going to read from the last verse of chapter 4.
1: Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have power, peace, sorry, (laughs) peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame Amen.
0: Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're all okay. So, we made it in spite of storm. Kiara, is it? Is it Kiara? Is that what she's called? I think it's an Irish name or something, isn't it? But um, we have something far more powerful than a storm in our hands this morning, haven't we? Something far more powerful and dramatic than a storm. The living word of God, right here in our hands. Isn't that incredible? So, reading the Bible together, RBT, and we're reading Romans for the month of February 2020. And this is part two. The gospel creates a new humanity. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. So, if you could open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 21 page 1132 in the Church Bibles. Now, obviously, we won't have time to cover all 21 verses, but we'll try and pick up on the main theme of this chapter. Now, how would you answer this question if someone asked you, who are you? Who are you? What would you say? Who are you? You might give your name and say, well, I'm I'm Dav. There are thousands of Davs in the world, believe it or not. Probably there are thousands of people with your very name, maybe your same surname as well. Well, you might give your gender. Oh, I'm a male, I'm a female. Or maybe one of the other fifty-six gender options on Facebook, isn't it? Fifty-eight apparently gender options on Facebook. Anyway, the world's gone mad, isn't it? Male or female, isn't it? You might give your age, but then lots of people have got the same age as you. You might say what race you are. I'm British. I don't know, white. Black, Asian, Arab. You might say your status, whether you're employed, unemployed, retired, student. You might give your marital status, married, single. Who are you? But none of those answers really answer the question as to who you are. But in the grand scheme of things, all that matters is whether you are in Christ or you're in Adam. Does't matter whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter what your name is, doesn't matter whether you're single, whether you're married, it doesn't matter what your status is, employed, unemployed, student, retired, all that matters is whether you are in Christ or you're in Adam, whether you are righteous or unrighteous, whether you're justified or whether you're guilty. But then what on earth does it mean to be in Christ or in Adam? Well, to be in Christ means... That you were righteous and justified. So, well, that's no good. What on earth does righteous and justified mean? What does it mean to have been made righteous? Well, it means to have been made right with God. And we can only be made right with God if we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness, clothed in His Perfection. Have you got Jesus' perfect clothes on this morning? Because you see, at the cross, a great swap happened. Jesus put on our unrighteous clothes. On the cross, Jesus put on my clothes of sin and your clothes of sin. The worst sin that you've ever committed, maybe it's been this week. He put that sin on. He clothed himself in my sin and your sin on the cross. But also, he offers us his clothes of righteousness, his perfect clothes. We can put on Christ. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' is perfection, not our sin. Isn't that incredible? And we read of that in the book of Romans, don't we? Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10 says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Now, in 2007 you could buy a four-inch square sort of off-cut of Princess Diana's dress. So it wasn't actually her dress. She was married was it, in 1981 to sort of Prince Charles. Well, the people who made the dress, I think they were Welsh people, David and Elizabeth Emmanuel. So for 25 years, they'd kept the off-cut in like a, a lock-up, for 25 years, a secure lockup. And then in 2007, you could buy a four inch square. How big is that? That's like smaller than this Bible, isn't it? Four inch square. And it would cost you a £1,000. It wasn't even the wedding dress, it was just an off cut and four inch square. And this is what David and Elizabeth Emmanuel sort of promised for people who would buy this four inch square off cut for £1,000. It says, it would bring the buyers a step closer to the woman who is still alive to so many throughout the world. Shall I read that again? It would bring the buyers a step closer to the woman who is still alive to so many throughout the world. Sadly, that is a lie, isn't it? It is a lie. Princess Diana is dead, but Jesus is alive. He's alive forevermore, isn't he? And we don't have to pay a thousand pounds, do we, for an off-cut of Jesus' righteous robes. No, his, all of his righteous robes are freely given to us as a gift. Isn't that incredible? Not just like an off-cut, a four-inch little off-cut that we have to pay a thousand pounds for. But what does it mean to be justified? So, to be righteous means to be made right with God. And to be made right with God, we have to have Jesus' righteous robes on. We have to have Jesus' perfection on us. So, when God looks at us, he just sees Jesus. He doesn't see David Taylor's sins. What does it mean to be made? What does it mean to be justified? Well, it's kind of like a term that comes from the courts, isn't it? To be justified means to be declared not guilty. If we've been made righteous, then God the Father can look at us and say, innocent. Not guilty anymore. Not guilty. What a relief. I've never had to stand in court. But I can imagine there'd be immense relief standing in court and the judge says, not guilty. That's the verdict but we're all guilty. We've all committed a crime against the living God by our sins. But if we're clothed in Jesus' righteous robes, if we've been made righteous, we can be declared not guilty anymore. So we can only be justified if we have Jesus' righteousness. So ultimately, there are only two types of people in the world. The righteous or the unrighteous the justified or the guilty, those who are in Christ or those who are in Adam. And that's all that matters when we die. Now, here's a thought. A hundred years from now, every single one of us will either be in heaven or hell. A hundred years flies by, doesn't it? My grandmother lived till she was 98. And one of the last things she said was, 98, 98. Where's the years gone? She remembers being a child. It flies by. I remember being a child, and I'm 37 now. And like, where's the time gone? It just flies by, doesn't it? A hundred years will fly by, and every single one of us, everyone you know, will either be in heaven or hell. All your neighbors, all your family members, all your friends, in a hundred years from now, will be in heaven or hell. Heaven, for those who are in Christ who've been made righteous, who've been justified, and hell for those who are still in Adam, who are unrighteous, who are guilty. So the big question is, how? How can someone be made righteous and justified? Well, verse 1 tells us, doesn't it? What do we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, We are justified through faith. Faith in what? Well, what do we read in verse 18 of Romans 5? One righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Through one righteous act, we are made righteous. We are justified. What do we read in verse 19 of Romans 5? Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And what do we read in verse 9 of Romans 5? Since we have now been justified by his blood, by the blood of Jesus. And then the last reference, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. What do we read there? He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So it's very, very clear, isn't it? Very clear how we can be made righteous, how we can be justified. We are made righteous and we are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. Through faith in Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, through faith in his perfect death and his glorious and victorious resurrection from the dead. So then the question is, so is justification just like a ticket to get us into heaven? Is justification just a ticket to get us into heaven? Does it affect our lives here and now? Because a lot of people say, oh, Christianity, it's all just sort of pie in the sky when you die. Have you heard people say that? It's all just pie in the sky when you die. Well, I heard someone say, no, Christianity is also steak on a plate while we wait. Or maybe steak on a plate while we wait, isn't it? Steak on a plate while we wait. There are so many blessings for us here and now if we've been justified. And we see that, don't we, in verses 1 and 2. Look at the blessings that we have now if we are justified. The blessings that we have right now if we are justified. What do we read there? Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and the first half of verse 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have, not we will, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, not will, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Isn't that incredible? So what blessings do we have here and now if we are justified? Well, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the question comes, why do we need peace with God? You sort of have to make peace with an enemy, don't you? Is God our enemy? Why do we need to make peace with God well, Romans chapter 5, verse 9 talks about God's wrath, his anger. God is angry with a sinful, fallen human race. With all of us, we're in Adam. And verse 10 says that we are God's enemies. We've made him our enemy. We have become his enemies. We are God's enemies because of our sin and rebellion. And verse 11 talks about us being reconciled, that we need to be reconciled to God. What does reconcile mean? Simply, it means becoming friends. We need to become friends again with God. We've offended him. We've made him angry by our sin. So we need peace with God because of our sin and rebellion. And by our sins, we've made ourselves his enemies. But then the question is, why, why does God have to be angry with sin? Why can't God just sort of turn a blind eye to sin? Why can't he just sort of sweep it under the carpet? Why can't he be like a, a grandparent who sort of turns a, a blind eye to sort of sin and rebellion? That's something I've noticed by my, uh, about my parents. Whenever my parents look after my children and my children are naughty, and then I go to discipline my children... My parents, I say, oh, they're fine, just leave them. I say, oh, you've changed. (laughs) You'd have never allowed me to get away with that when I was a child. But that's almost like what grandparents are like. They're just there to spoil children, isn't it? Sort of turn a little blind eye, isn't it? To they're not, oh, they're fine. They're just children. They're just having fun or something. That's what they do sometimes, isn't it? And you're thinking, well, why can't God be like that? a sort of soft grandparent-type figure. No, God is holy and loving, and he is justifiably hostile towards everything that is wrong. And I'm glad of that, that God is justifiably hostile towards everything that is wrong. Now, one of my... um, uh, I don't know, you might call it a guilty pleasure, is to listen to um, call-in radio talk shows. I always put them on in the car, and then when Hannah gets in the car, what is this rubbish you listen to on the radio? I don't know, there's something weird about me. I love listening to people sort of debating or something. I'm useless at debating, but I don't watch soaps or a lot of TV, but listening to that, on radio, isn't it? People phoning in and complain and talk about sort of topical issues. Is there anyone else like doing things like that? It's like uh, five live, isn't it? There's talk radio, there's LBC. I say, I've always got them on, isn't it? And Hannah's saying it's so intense. <laughs> People are just arguing and sort of getting so worked up about things. And I think this week it's been quite dramatic, isn't it? Since last Sunday where we had uh, the terrorist attacks, didn't we? The stabbings. And uh, people have sort of brought up the subject of capital punishment again. That always comes up, doesn't it, on talk radio, on sort of uh, these um, uh, radio phone-in shows, isn't it? It always comes up, the issue of capital punishment. And people are saying terrorists need the death penalty. Have you heard people sort of say that? And I heard someone ringing up, actually volunteering his services. I said, "And I'll do it. <laughs> I'll execute these people." I was like, "Whoa! <laughs> no wonder." I said, "Turn it off. These people are nuts and thing." The death penalty should be brought back. Some people are thinking. But could you imagine if someone phoned up and said? Yeah, the death penalty should be brought back, but not just for terrorists, for everyone. Could you imagine if someone said that? If they said calmly, because I have a hostility towards everything that is wrong, even the smallest act, deserves to be punished by death. Could you imagine if someone said that? Well, you might be thinking, well, has God got like a temper or like an anger issues? No, God's anger is controlled, patient, holy, and loving. His anger is controlled, patient, loving, and holy. Now, I find, as a parent, it's very easy for me to discipline my children in the moment. In the moment, especially if they've annoyed me personally. (laughs) It's easy to do something straight away, isn't it? But it's very, I find it very difficult to discipline my child a long time after the event. So say if they'd been naughty in church this morning, and then I said, this afternoon, we're going to have words or something. But then maybe this afternoon, I said, oh, it's past now, or whatever, isn't it? I'm not as angry as I was this morning now. But that is good parenting, someone who is still angry, they have this patient Self-controlled, who disciplines them in love, isn't it? I'm still angry. I'm not losing my temper, isn't it? It's a self-controlled, patient anger, isn't it? And that's what the wrath of God is like. He is patient and self-controlled with his anger. He doesn't just fly off the handle. He doesn't snap. No. Patient and self-controlled with it. So when we've made peace with God, another blessing accompanies that, doesn't it? What do we read there? We've made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, verse 2 sounds like a description of prayer, doesn't it? Isn't it wonderful, verse 2? Sounds like a description of prayer. So through Jesus, we have gained access into God's grace. It sounds very much like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, doesn't it? I know we've studied this not that long ago. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So if we've been justified, we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we have access to God. Access to God. Access before his throne of grace. Because it's very difficult to speak to someone if you're not at peace with them. So whenever a husband and wife have argued, I've never experienced this, obviously, but whenever a husband and wife have argued, they're not on talking terms, are they? It's very difficult for them to even look at each other in the eye, isn't it? Or maybe another relative or, or a friend. As a, you've heard the term, oh, they're not on talking terms. A husband and wife or family members or friends or colleagues, they're not on talking terms. Because there's no peace there, is there? But when we have peace with God, if we've been justified, we're on talking terms with him. We have access into the throne room in heaven, and we can enjoy God's sort of undeserved kindness, favour, friendship, and help. So let's have a look at the second half of this too, as we go on, Romans chapter five, and the second half of this too, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, glory is a word that's often used to describe heaven, isn't it? Have you heard of people saying, oh, they've gone to glory? When someone has sort of breathed their last, taken their last heartbeat, a Christian, someone who has faith in Christ, to they say, they've gone into glory. Glory. The word that's often used to describe heaven. And biblical hope, biblical hope, is being certain that something will happen but you just don't know when it will happen. Because we say hope for all sorts of things. isn't it? Oh, I hope the weather will be better tomorrow. But we don't actually know 100% if the weather's going to be better tomorrow, do we? That's just like a, a pointless hope, isn't it? But a biblical hope is, yeah, I know this is going to happen, but I just don't know when. So for the believer, that's the hope we have. We know that we're going to glory one day, don't we? Well, I hope we all know that we're going to glory one day. But we just don't know when it's going to happen. That is biblical hope. So he starts talking about heaven in the second half of verse 2, you could say. But then he speaks again about the blessings we have now, here on earth, here and now, in verse 3, don't we? He starts talking about the steak on the plate again in verse 3. What do we have there? do we read there in Romans 5 verse 3? So he's talked about glory, the future, the hope of glory that we have. But then in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So Romans chapter 5 verse 3 teaches us how we should react when we suffer. How should we react when we suffer? Well, we need to be honest with God. We can say, God, this is hard. This is painful, this suffering I'm going through. But please use this suffering to teach me to persevere. Please use this suffering to strengthen my character. Please use this suffering for me to hope in heaven more. And I'm sure you all maybe agree with me. But the godliest people we all know probably. Are people who have gone through suffering. Or are going through suffering. So me and Hannah were talking about this this week. I said, who, who would you say is the godliest person you know? And some of the people who could think of. Said, oh, these are people who have gone through horrific suffering. Or are still going through horrific suffering. I know, so, I know at least two people who've had their lives deeply impacted when they met um, the well-known Christian, uh, Joni Erikson Tarder, who in 1967, at the age of 17, she became paralyzed from the neck down. She became a quadriplegic. And people who I know personally who have met her have said, it was almost life-changing the joy that came out of this person, the hope and the peace that came out of her, said it's had such an impact on my life. Uh, because Joni Erickson, she, um, she wrote a biography that's been translated into 15 different languages. And um, she's been to 35 countries all over the world giving her testimony. And she's got some really powerful quotes. I'll just sort of mentioned two of them. This is one of her quotes. So someone from the age of 17, from 1967, and, t- and she's still alive today, she has, she's hardly been able to move or have any feeling from her neck down. And you might be thinking, oh, this person must be so depressed and uh, just wouldn't see any hope or point in living anymore. But this is what she says. Suffering is arguably God's choicest tool in shaping the character of Christ in us. And then another short little quote from her. Suffering helps me see heaven. Isn't that quite something, isn't it? So when we're going through suffering, we should think, oh, come Lord Jesus, come, isn't it? And Joni Erickson says, I long for the day when I'll be able to throw this wheelchair into hell and walk in glory with Jesus Christ. Suffering helps me to see heaven. And then what do we read in verse 5 of Romans chapter 5? Romans 5 verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who's been given to us. So we've already thought that hope is often connected with heaven. Heaven. So, is there a connection between heaven and the Holy Spirit? It's such an image, isn't it? to know, uh, Romans chapter five, verse five. God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You can almost imagine that God's got a barrel of His love, <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit is like a funnel, and He's pouring His love through this funnel into our hearts. And the Holy Spirit is kind of like the funnel. He's pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we know that hope is connected with heaven, but is there a connection between heaven and the Holy Spirit? Well, I heard one preacher say that the Holy Spirit is kind of like a postcard from heaven. And a postcard just gives you a little taste of what the holiday destination is like, isn't it? It gives you a little picture of what it's like. So the Holy Spirit, kind of like a postcard from heaven, if I can say that reverently. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit gives us some love, joy, and peace. And say, oh, wow, that's amazing. He said, oh, there's a lot more of that where you're going. I've just given you a tiny little sample here. Because sometimes you look at the say, oh, wow, isn't this place beautiful? So oh, when you get there, you ain't seen nothing else. This is just a tiny little picture of it, isn't it? And we do get tastes of heaven on earth, don't we? We've all known incredible times of joy and peace. I thought, oh, I wish it could always be like this. I long to be where the praise is never ending, isn't it? Where the glory never fades. So, yeah, you go in there. I've just given you a little sample. That's where you're heading. And then this is this is five to eight really, are so Trinitarian, aren't they? In uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verses 5 to 8. Incredibly Trinitarian verses. So we've seen the Holy Spirit there and the Father in uh, verse 5 and then verses 6 to 8. What do we read there? You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I used, to think, I used to think that the father was angry with us and that he wanted to destroy us. So the father's really angry with the human race. Oh, look at them, those sinful, disobedient people. I'm going to destroy them. And then the son sort of steps forward. Father, no, don't do it. I'll go and make them right, and then you can sort of barely tolerate them. (laughs) But it's not like that at all, isn't it? It's not like that at all. The Father loved us while we were still sinners, didn't He? He loved us and gave His one and only Son for us, gave His best for us. And Jesus loved us while we were still sinners and willingly laid down His life for us. So it wasn't sort of Jesus... Stepping in to stop the Father from destroying us. No, it was a plan, wasn't it? Way back in eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came up with this plan to redeem us. Now, can you imagine if one of those uh, callers for those like talk radio shows uh, phoned up and they were discussing uh, capital punishment again? And this person phoned up and said, yes, I believe you should bring the death penalty back. That everyone who's committed a crime, everyone who's done anything wrong deserves to die. But I don't want anyone to die. If anything, I'm willing to sacrifice my own son to die instead of the terrorists, the murderers, the thieves, the criminals, the liars, the people who gossip, the people who criticize, the people who complain, the people who are jealous, the people who are selfish. I'm willing to sacrifice my own son. And my son, he loves everyone as well. He doesn't want anyone to die. He's willing to lay down his life as well. Now, that's very unlikely that would ever happen, isn't it? But it has happened. The Father in heaven has said... I love this world, and I'm sending my son to die. And Jesus says, and I have come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So the Father loved us, and Jesus loved us and died for us while we were ungodly, while we were unrighteous, while we were guilty sinners. And that's what we get in verses 9 to 11, isn't it? Romans 5, verses 9 to 11, are basically telling us, look, if God loved you this much, if God loved you this much in verses 5 to 8, that while you were guilty enemies, he was willing to send his son to die for you, if Jesus loved you so much in verses 5 to 8, that he was willing to lay down his life for you, How much safer do you think you are now that you've been justified? That brings us so much comfort and hope, doesn't it? Verses 9 to 11. How safe are we now if we've been justified? If we were loved so much when we were guilty, when we were God's enemies? Amazing things, aren't they? So then the question is, when did sin come into the world? Where did sin come from, and who does it affect, and what are its consequences? Where did sin come from? Who does it affect, and what are its consequences? Well, verse 12 tells us, doesn't it? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Who's the one man? That's Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam, and death through sin so sin affects everyone and the consequence of sin is death and in this way death came to all people it affects all people because all sinned but then our response could be isn't that a bit unfair so this man who lived 6,000 years ago disobeyed God and I'm a sinner because of what someone did 6,000 years ago That doesn't sound right. Uh, My son Nathan this week said, oh, I hate Adam and Eve. (laughs) He said that, didn't he? I hate Adam and Eve. Why did they have to eat the fruit from the tree? (laughs) And and how do you answer that question to a child? says, I hate Adam and Eve. Why did they have to eat the fruit from the tree? And I, I suppose the way I kind of tried to answer it, which was wrong, was probably, well, if you'd have been there, Nathan, you'd have eaten the fruit because we still do what Adam and Eve do today. We don't listen to God. We hide from God, and we pass the blame onto to other people. That's maybe kind of right, is not it? But Adam's rebellion in the garden had lasting consequences. 6,000 years ago, arguably, when Adam sort of rebelled, it had lasting consequences. Um, between 1788, between the year 1788 and 1968, 168,000 convicts were sent to where? Australia. Yeah, between 1788 and 1868, 168 British people were sent to Australia. They were convicts. So they committed a crime, and then they were exiled. They were banished from the homeland And even today, apparently 22% of all Australians are from one or more convicts who arrived before uh, 1868. Isn't that interesting? So someone maybe committed a crime in this land in the sort of 18th century or early 19th century. And then from then on, they are children and they are children had to live far away from the homeland, isn't it? So because Adam committed that sin, we've been banished from God's presence. It had consequences that passed on from generation to generation. And if I could stop there for a moment, even though our sin isn't the same as Adam's original sin, when we sin, it does have consequences. When Adam rebelled against God 6,000 years ago, Did he think that 150,000 people would die every single day? Do you know every single day, 150,000 people die? 150,000 people will be dead by the time we go to bed tonight. Why? Because of Adam's original sin. So the sin that we commit today could have lasting consequences. We might think, "Ah, just a little lie, just losing my temper, just a little bit of gossip, a little bit of bitterness... A little bit of unforgiveness. Ah, it doesn't do anything. A little look of lust. Doesn't it? Does it really matter? Yeah, it could. Isn't it? Our sins do have consequences. But I suppose the right way for me to have answered Nathan's question is that Adam represented the human race in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago. So it's a bit like... The Welsh rugby team lost yesterday, to some people's delight, maybe. The Welsh rugby team lost yesterday. And uh, I, I could have gone up to John this morning and said, Hey, John, we lost, we lost yesterday in the rugby. And maybe someone over here saying, oh, John and Dav, do you play rugby? Oh, no, no, we don't play rugby. Uh, Wales played Ireland yesterday and Wales lost And then someone could have looked at us, what, are you saying that 6.6 million Irishmen (laughs) played a game of rugby against 3 million Welshmen? That must have been a very big rugby pitch. Oh, no, 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 there were 23 people representing Wales, and there were 23 people representing Ireland. So then me and Dav can say now, we lost, (laughs) because those 23 people representing Wales Does that make sense? So Adam represents the human race. We we understand that one person representing a whole nation, don't we? Adam represented the human race when we lost in the Garden of Eden. We lost. But as a human race, we have another representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was one. He's one, isn't he? So, Jesus is very similar to Adam. They both represent the human race, but they take us in very different directions. Jesus and Adam take the human race in very different directions. So, Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, but then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was obedient to God's will, wasn't he? He said, Not my will but your will be done, Jesus said. And Adam went to the tree to sort of serve himself, didn't he? But Jesus went to another tree, didn't he? He went to the cross to serve other people, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Adam died, and from the dust Adam came, and to the dust he returned. Adam is dead he's still dead today but jesus died and he rose again and he's alive today forevermore's name and adam took the human race from innocence to guilt but jesus takes the human race from guilt to innocence to be declared to be justified declared not guilty if we've been made righteous so adam brought us death and Jesus brought us life, eternal life. So think of yourself in Adam. We did nothing, did we? We did nothing even before we were born. Even in our mother's womb, we were sinners because of Adam. And you might think, but I did nothing. Yeah, that's right. You did nothing, but you were a sinner from the time you were conceived. But then think of yourself in Christ You've done nothing. We've done nothing. But we're still made righteous and justified. And that's the gospel. It's got nothing to do with works. It's a free gift that we receive from Jesus. So let's come back to the beginning. Who are you? Are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? Are you righteous or unrighteous? Are you justified or are you guilty? And you might be thinking, I'm not sure. Well, you can make sure of it today. How? By trusting in Jesus. Trusting in his obedience, his perfect life. Trusting in his death for you and me on the cross. The punishment he took for me and you on the cross. Trusting in his resurrection. And we come to Jesus by faith. And we just receive him. We receive his righteousness. And the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Girls, are you listening? This is important. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.